Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We have a guest speaker with us, and we hope that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. We are very honored today, uh, in my opinion, to have an American hero uh, with us, with Dave Reaver. Uh, Dave, I'm not going to, I'll let him tell his story, but had a life-changing, life-altering experience in Vietnam in 1968, uh, and he experienced brokenness in every way that you can, physically, mentally, emotionally, in every way, and you're going to hear the story of God's restoration this morning. Dave uh, has is very active with the Department of Defense. Since 9-11, he works regularly with the Department of Defense. He's leaving Tuesday to go to Hawaii to uh, uh, work at Pearl Harbor and all the bases around there with our servicemen. Dave's call as an evangelist is to the church, but it's also to the brokenness that happens in our servicemen and women, and he's still serving there. He's got ministries all around the world. At the end of the service today, we're going to take an offering for Dave and his ministry. The ushers will be in the back. You can give on the giving uh, QR code in front of you or uh, out in the foyer on our website, however you want to give. But we're very honored today to, to, to what I believe is an American hero, and he's a general of the faith. Would you make welcome to Generations Church our friend Dave Reaver? Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. You're just doing that because you mean it. <laughs> good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. I am so happy to be with you today. Pastor Brian, you are a spoiler. Man, you know how to make a guy feel important. You and your precious wife have been so kind to me, and it's... We had a good time last night. Pastor, thanks for picking me up at the airport. I'm just thrilled to be here with you today. I've never been to your church. I understand some of the young people I've mentored, like Richie Dabbs, have come here. And so uh, I feel comfortable to know that you would accept my doctrine because you accept some of the guys I trained. Uh, first of all, thank you for letting me sit. Uh, I need to make a few explanations before I get started here. Uh, in 2010, I was in Tikrit, Iraq, and I jumped out of a helicopter, but when I hit the ground, I hit wrong, and I broke six vertebrae, and they had to put in 12 screws and two rods. I was paralyzed for a couple of years, but now I can walk again. I don't do good with steps, and I can't stand long, so thank you for letting me sit. Uh, secondly, uh, it's uh, very important to me that you understand that I have a few items back here that are for sale, but I want you to get it right now. I do not take any royalties. I don't take any sales percentages. Nothing I'm presenting here in a moment comes to me. It all goes to our warriors. Um, I work for the Department of Defense as a resiliency trainer and suicide prevention counselor for Department of Defense for all branches. And um, I travel throughout Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Baza, Kosovo, North Africa, South Korea, Korea, Japan, Okinawa, I can go on wherever there are troops. That's where they send me. 
It's not because I'm good looking, although it's better. <laughs> Five years ago, I got a nose and eyelids and lips back. They took surgery number 50 through 55, rebuilt my face. And I, I'm so proud of my nose. It's a boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have a nose and, and eyelids, and they released my neck so I can turn my head. And my ear is plastic. They, they were going to make me a real one, but I like my plastic one better. I can leave it and listen to what you say about me when I'm gone. <laughs> you, we're going to have a good time this morning. I can see that. Pastor Brian must be a good preacher because you listen. I've gone to some churches like preaching to the dead in Christ. <laughs> dead in Christ. But uh, so I'm going to mention these items right quick, but I just want to make sure you understand that uh, the work I do in these areas of travel for the military, they pay my expenses, but they don't, they don't, I, occasionally I get a pretty good contract, especially if it's in a war zone, but this covers all the costs of my guys coming in from all over the world, all those countries I mentioned, if we have troops there that are going through a dark time or difficulty, it costs a million dollars to train a troop. In special operations cost a million dollars a year to keep him on the in the field of operation. When one of them takes his life, that's a huge loss. That's the economic. That's not talking about the spiritual, emotional toll. Just the financial loss of a warrior to suicide is devastating. So I'm a pretty good investment for the government. If I can save one kid's life, you see what I'm trying to say? I'm a better investment for the kingdom of God because we want to get him to heaven. And but anyway, we have a we have a flag that I'm not going to take it out of the bag, but it's, uh, it's got a red and a blue uh, stripe in it, one for red for our fire department and first responders and blue for our law enforcement. And that thin blue line and red line there is to remind people that the home front has to have those warriors protecting you at home. They're just as important as any warrior downrange in any of the countries that are serving for our freedom today, and I want every first responder, law enforcement officer in this place to know we love you immensely. We thank God Almighty for you. We need more of you, and we need to pay you better, and so I'm on your side. And we also have a flag back there with a thin green line, and uh, today I work with the Border Patrol in the great state of Texas down along the Rio Grande River just came from there. Uh, they've had four suicides in the last few weeks because these men have trained and trained and trained, give their heart and soul, and then to be abandoned by their government. Whew, I can hardly talk about it. <sighs> they're devastated. And they're some of the most amazing law enforcement we've ever had in our country, and I'm so honored that they call me to come down and, and minister to them. So whenever I mention these flags and these books, you're helping me cover those costs because I don't take anything from Border Patrol. Uh, real quickly, I have a brand new book out called Forged in Fire. That book is a compilation of the history of my family, my wife, my two kids, and what they went through when I came back out of that war. So confused. And the subtitle, if you want to call it that, A Lifetime of Pain Forged a Lifestyle of resiliency, and that's what the military calls me to do. Again, it's not because I'm good looking. It's certainly not because of my military strength that I sit down to talk. 
It's not because of my academic achievements. I was in the top 10% of the lower one-third of my class. <laughs> you got it. A lot of people don't understand fractions. Five out of four people don't understand fractions. <laughs> if you didn't understand that, you were in my class. Uh, that book is an amazing book, and it describes the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder that I didn't even know what it was. And to this day, it's impacting my life, and I still have to, still have to deal with images. I'm not emotional. I'm allergic to your carpet. Sorry. I said I wasn't going to let this happen. But um, images that get imprinted on the retina of your memory that you can't get rid of. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, you, uh, you need to know there's hope in Jesus. There's a companion book that goes with it. It's a great devotional that extracts from those stories the powerful, powerful meaning of what it is to have hope in the time of hopelessness, help in the time when you're helpless, love in the time when you feel like nobody in the world loves you and you hate yourself enough to take your own life. That book will be a powerful asset. Another one called Scarred Autobiography. It brings you up to date with all the things I'm doing with our government today all over the world with our troops from the beginning of being born to a woman that I cost her her life. She lived many years, but devastated by my birth, was never able to be normal again, couldn't speak, couldn't respond uh, for decades. And what it did to me as a boy, understanding I caused that, but as a child, not understanding that it wasn't really my fault, but I took it on and I became suicidal at nine years old and fought it for most of my life. Another book called War and Recovery, one of the most amazing books because it takes battlefield stories, applies them to the mission field of your life, and every story has a scripture that will verify your tragedy that can be turned into a triumph, just like mine. I go to war and come home with a Purple Heart Award today. Uh, you come home with a Purple <laughs> Heart. Well, I didn't expect that. My point is I come home with a Purple Heart. You go to divorce court, come home with a broken heart and a broken washer, and the ex got the dryer, and it works. Because life's not fair. And then finally, the most amazing book I ever wrote. It's called Magic Fountain. And uh, every illustration is hand-drawn. There's nothing in this book computer-generated. It's a family heirloom, and it's a story of three old hags in their search for riches and what they find at the end of the trail when they meet the king's son on his white horse. It's an amazing story. I tried to write it in the C.S. Lewis style of analogy, but you will go crazy over the Magic Fountain because you'll find out at the end which of the three hags you are. Their names are hack number one, hack number two, and hack number three. Easier to remember that way. I hope you'll stop by the table again. I take nothing. All this goes to our Warriors program. Thanks for letting me mention. I hope it doesn't come off too commercial, but I'd do it again because I'll do anything to help take care of my Warriors. They've never paid one penny to come to my facilities or for me to go to them. The Warriors never pay. I, they've already given an arm and leg. 
You can use your credit card or your neighbor's card, whichever one you have. <laughs> a, few, uh, a few thoughts on the scriptures I'd like to share with you. First of all, I want to tell you that uh, in February, uh, three years ago, I, my wife passed away. I tell everybody she, she left me for another man. <laughs> His name is Jesus, and I know where he lives. <laughs> <laughs> but God's a God of second chances, and a, a little over two months ago, I married another girl, and uh, we've been married now two months. She is a military girl. She uh, served in the Marine Corps. I salute her every morning. And uh, her husband lost his life in Afghanistan. She's considerably younger than I am, but she's keeping up best she can. <laughs> I'm 77 going on 50, and 50 is a new 30, and if you're into Common Core math, I'm 21. <laughs> but... Uh, she couldn't make this trip. She had to go home. She's getting things moved still to our home in Fort Worth. But the God of second chances is a God that gives us the opportunity to take our tragedies, and he turns them into triumph. And that's what I really want to focus on in large way today in my personal story. Having not been here before, I, I'm going to share my story, but I have to beg you to please understand, I can talk without talking about myself. I'm not a narcissist. I'm not looking for attention. It's very awkward for me to talk about some things. You've already seen that. I'm emotional because some of these scars are still very tender. And uh, the nice thing about scar tissue is people look at my right side and they say, you're not 77, you're younger than that. Well, scar tissue doesn't wrinkle. <laughs> look at this side and say, you're 90? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So um, I'm kind of two-faced. I try not to be. I go to Japan, they don't like me because I lost face. And... Uh, <laughs> and I have a lot of spare parts. I had, my hair was blown off. My ear was blown off. My face was blown off. From my waist up, 60 pounds of flesh was blown off. I'm, I lost 50% uh, of my skin. Uh, I weighed 190 pounds that morning. I weighed 130 pounds that evening. I kept both arms and legs. And uh, But with all the parts, I used to put all the parts on the bed. My wife would say, good night, and I was in the other room. That's kind of funny. It's also not true. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. Uh, I don't mind the ear. I, I Actually, I was preaching in Jamaica when I used to travel with Billy Graham. I traveled for nine years with Dr. Graham and did follow-up crusades for teenagers. And then we had board members. We shared the same board members for 20 years. And so I'm very much mentored and governed by the thought process of mass evangelism through Dr. Graham. And I was preaching in Jamaica when I had about 10,000 people there. And when everybody does the same thing at the same time, there's something wrong. And this is what they did. <gasps> they covered their mouth, wide-eyed, sucking there like a hoover, pointing at me. I checked my fly. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> my fly was fine. I look around. My ear had fallen off. <laughs> it was laying on my shoulder. I couldn't ignore it because they're about to die out there. They're going to have Jonestown without the green or the purple Kool-Aid, whatever it was. So I picked up my hair, dried the sweat, and stuck it back on. I thought that'd help it got worse. They thought it was a miracle, and they all got saved. <laughs> and that's a true story. They all came forward. I don't know if it's to see Jesus or to see my ear. God will use anything, won't he? But I, you, some of you are sitting there saying, you're talking about tragedy, man. You're laughing about it. Yes, I'm laughing about it. The devil took his best shot, and I'm still here. No weapon 
No weapon formed against us can prosper. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We're more than conquerors through Christ. So don't ever, don't ever, if he knocks you down, get up and knock him down again. If he hits you once, hit him twice. I'll call it one-upmanship. Just give him heaven if he gives you hell. Because I can tell you today, the last thing in the world the devil wants is what he knows he's already assigned to. When he brings up your past, bring up his future. Amen. Yeah. So I was born to this woman that I took her life. She couldn't hold me, couldn't feed me. Had a Mexican nanny, Maria Rubio from Matamoros, Mexico. She was a godly woman. She was my nanny. I learned Spanish before I learned English. I was six years old when I went to school, and they told me I'd learn English. And then they told me I wasn't a Mexican. <laughs> Blew my Latino mind. Because I thought I was Mexican. It's the first time in my life I ever discovered I wasn't what I thought I was. Let me say it again. It's the first time I would find out many times later that I'm not the man I thought I was. That's called self-discovery. And self-discovery can be very embarrassing, can be very difficult, become very bitter. Simon Peter found that out when Jesus said, you'll deny me three times at the crow of a rooster and the job of a servant girl. And he said, not me. Though all forsake, that included Pastor Brian, his wife, all of you, they include me. Though all forsake you, Peter said, yet will not I. If you need me, just call me, 1-800-P-E-T-E-R. I'll be right there. And at the job of a servant girl and the crowing of a rooster, the low end of the food chain, Bubba, he cursed Jesus to his face, denied him. And when he looked over and saw Jesus standing there, and Jesus heard every word he said, he was so humiliated, so embarrassed. The Bible says he went over, sat down on the porch, and wept bitter tears. I want to make a statement. I hope you're listening. Until you find out you're not who you think you are, until you discover you're not the mighty man of war or the greatest woman that ever walked the face of the earth, when you find out that we're of the flesh, we're of the carnal mind, and I'm going to tell you, folks, that moment of self-discovery is so revealing, it's embarrassing, humiliating, and most of the time it brings us to bitter tears. But until that happens, the prayer of our brother earlier about being broken, my friend, you have no idea you are helping me preach my message. To be broken is something nobody wants, but until it happens, you cannot be like Jesus who was broken for us. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken. His body was broken. His soul was challenged, but his spirit soared. Think about it. In the garden, he said, now is my soul troubled. Jesus had a troubled soul, so much so he was speechless for a moment. What shall I say? Then he answered the question, not my will, thine be done. If it can be that I don't have to go through this, don't make me go through it, but I'll go through what's coming. I'll go to that cross if that's what it takes. And he did, because the Bible says he endured the cross for the, what? The joy set before him. So until your soul has the joy of the Lord, your body and its troubling will not allow your soul to go through it. You'll, you'll resist, you'll back off, you won't allow yourself to be broken. And until you're broken, you can't be like Jesus. Isn't that crazy? I, I mean... Who wants to be broken? <laughs> I've been broken so many times. I, I think that's my natural state. I'm not recommending you go stand in front of a bus, get run over, so God give you a testimony. Good grief. 
I've got all the testimony I want. As a matter of fact, I got more. I don't even want a testimony sometimes. It still hurts. I've had 62 surgeries, and I got three more on the books I got to go through. I don't like it, but I'm going to tell you what. It makes me available to the military. Remember, they don't call me because I'm good looking or strong or mighty man of war or because of my intelligence. They call me because I've been broken and healed. And they're looking for somebody who's been through the fire and made it out on the other side. And that's where you and I come in. We're the hope of this generation, generation church. We're the hope of this generation because we can be broken. The world doesn't make it. Someone said to me, how does the world make it? I said, have you read the newspaper? Who said they're making this? Looks to me like they're falling apart at the seams. They don't even know what they are. They don't know if they're boys or girls, men or women. They can't figure out what they are. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know I am a child of God. Give it up for Jesus today in the house of the Lord. So I go through school, and I got to tell you, this is kind of funny, I guess. At five years old, I prayed a sinner's prayer. I didn't even know what sin was. I'm five years old. Ask Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I didn't know what it was, but I did, and he did, but I didn't know what it was. Eleven years later, I met a girl. I found out what sin was. <laughs> Man, I was born in that stuff. I realized, whoa, I better go back to that five-year-old kid's prayer and figure it out, and I did, and at 16, I committed, recommitted, rededicated, but I made a consecration of my life from that point to sitting on this chair. I want to tell you something. I'm not of the elk that says if it, once you give your heart to Jesus, you don't have the right to sin again. You can go to hell if you want to. I just don't want to. How about you? I don't want to go to hell. I've been told to a few times, but I'm not going to listen to them. <laughs> so I made a decision to follow Christ at 16. I met a girl that I fell in love with, asked her to marry me. She slapped me. She said, I'm only 13 years old. <laughs> I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. <laughs> She slapped me again. Her dad said, no, his name was Smith N. Wesson. <laughs> and he said no, and when he spoke, he spoke with a loud voice, and I listened. And so we waited till she got out of high school and got married. And uh, I was a couple years older than her, and so I, was, I went to Bible college because I wanted to be like my dad, not like some guy slam-dunking a basketball or kicking a football through the goalposts of life. I... I never was into sports as a kid. I tried. I was in the ninth grade. I played football as a freshman, one down. It hurt. I quit, joined the band, and watched other kids get hurt. <laughs> That's the hero talking to you, Pastor. You call me a hero. <laughs> I don't like pain. I discovered I'm allergic to pain. I break out in tears. <laughs> I just didn't know what pain was, buddy. It was coming. I did it like a freight train. I had no clue what was coming. But I grew up around it, seeing it my mom. She never once shook her fist in heaven's face, never once. And when she lost all ability to speak and respond, to, to do anything, all she could do was be fed through a tube for years in a nursing home. Never once, when she could still speak, never once I ever hear her say, why me, God? Don't say that. What if he answered you? I don't know, George. There's just something about you I don't like. <laughs> Poof. God is good. He's not bad, and he doesn't tempt us, and neither can he be tempted. God does not do evil. Say it with me. God does not do evil. 
He's a good God. Now, we do evil. We do more damage to ourselves than anybody else, including the devil. We teach the devil most of what he knows. He learns from us. So I'm here to tell you that from the time of 16 years old to now, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But one mistake I did not make, I've never walked away from the grace of Jesus Christ. Never walked away from my salvation. Don't do it, friend. Don't walk away. Bible says nothing can pluck you out of the hand of God. Nothing can, but doesn't mean you can't jump. So I recommend you don't jump. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. So I'm in Bible college. I get this little letter from a very rich uncle. His name is Sam. <laughs> he told me to go take a physical. I wrote back and thanked him for his inquiry into my health, but I felt fine. That's a joke. <laughs> I took my physical. I did. It's the only exam I passed that whole semester of Bible college. I got no plus on the blood test. <laughs> I'm seeing if that soaked in. I don't think it did, but that's all right. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, was, I was passing, but I was, uh, my grade level was about a C to a D average. I was working 70 hours a week at General Dynamics. We were building the F-111 fighter bomber. I was making more money than my college president. Isn't that crazy? What does that do for your ambition for a good education when you're a freshman in college making more money than your college president? So I didn't study. Well, that was my biggest mistake because I got drafted. They told me to take the physical. I did pass the physical, and I decided I did not want to serve in the Army. So I didn't go back to be sworn in. I went out and joined the Navy. I signed every piece of paper that recruiter slid under my ballpoint pen, and I became a sailor. I was going to see the world, but I didn't want to join the Army. They would hurt me. So I got up that morning and had a bad decade. I joined the Navy. I served in the United States Navy. I'm sitting here today, never been on a ship in my life. Well, other than a cruise ship. One time they gave me a free cruise, trying to get me to do a youth convention on the cruise. They had so many booze on there. I'm not going to put a bunch of kids on a booze cruise line or whatever that thing was. So the only ship I've ever been on was a was a cruise ship, and in the Navy, they put me on a little riverboat made of fiberglass. It's featured in a movie called Apocalypse Now, and more recently, a movie called Acts of Valor. I was assigned to SEAL Team 1. I was a brown water black beret, and we had the highest killed in action per capita of any special operations group in the military. But we couldn't prove it, because when our boats were hit, and the boat went down, the bodies went down with the boat. And if a body is not recovered, even though they know you're dead, you're not listed as killed in action. Until they get your body, you're missing in action. Until many years later, then they call you lost at sea, and that's the same as, as uh, KIA. So I'm at the airport. After all my training, I'm getting ready to go to Vietnam with SEAL Team 1, and I'm the boat guy. I'm driving the fastest boats in the military with SEALs on board. We go to war together. I looked at my wife. She said, are you coming back? I said, I'll be back without a scar. <laughs> oh, dude, I knew better. I knew better. I'd seen all the training films. We had all the statistics. I knew if I came back at all, I wasn't going to be normal. I'll be back without a scar. should have just said, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> then I could be governor of California. I walked away with a chill up my spine thinking, what if I don't come back? God was already preparing me mentally, emotionally for what could and would eventually happen. I was actually 
listed killed in action for 34 years. My pay record, my military, uh, my service record said I was KIA. My pay record, my hospital record showed that I was alive. And 34 years later, I get a letter from the Navy, from the president. The United States Navy has not forgotten you. They did for 34 years. <laughs> and, uh, I found out my name's on the wall in, in uh, Washington, D.C., but not on the front. My name's on the top edge. I hadn't been up there, but some people from the Park Service said, my name is up there because I spoke for the dedication of the wall. My name should have been chiseled in. But God had a plan for my life. Listen carefully. Read what's left of these lips. God has a plan for our lives. And there's not a devil in or out of hell big enough to turn that hand over. You're in his palm. Don't jump. Stay in the hand of God, ladies and gentlemen. Find out what that call of God is on your life. Because every, if you've got a heartbeat and you're still breathing a sound mind, you have a calling on your life. And I think I can prove that for him through today. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. You sound like you're a good crowd. I like talking to a sharp audience. I mean that. I've been, like I said, every night I get a dull one, and I just I can't get off the platform quick enough. <laughs> it's kind of like some of the music I've heard. Y'all pray for us while we try to sing. They start singing, I start praying. <laughs> but all that said, on July the 26th, 1969, yes, teenager, right after the War of 1812, I heard what you were thinking. <laughs> I'm on the river, on the bend of a river that goes into Cambodia. I was right on the edge of Cambodia on the Vam Cote River, deep in the jungle of Vietnam. Three days earlier, I'd taken a hit at that exact same place. They pulled shrapnel out of my eyeball and stitched up a laceration on my face that's since been blown off. At the time, on the 23rd of July, that was my first injury. I had eight months without a scratch. I was off the river for three days and I was patched up. I was still in bleeding gauze when I went back on the river the third day because no one was, I had, there was no one to replace me and we were being overrun constantly because Lyndon Johnson stopped bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail. When he stopped bombing the trail, people weren't being killed on that trail. When they're bombing it, they knew not to get on it. So when they got on it, they started killing us, coming in like a flood. So they put me back on the river on the 26th, and I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade, beached the boat, and I was going to throw the grenade to burn down high brush, detonate booby traps, put up smoke. This thing burns at 5,000 degree Fahrenheit. To hold it in your hand, so don't ever pick up that bottle of water. Cool to the touch. But if that canister is compromised and air, even the slightest bit of air gets into that, it detonates that phosphorus. It doesn't need a trigger, it doesn't need a fuse, it just needs oxygen. It'll spontaneously combust. When it blows, it blows in full force. It was in my hand, and I drew it back, and I was one second, one more second, I would have delivered that grenade. And a sniper put me in his crosshairs and pulled the trigger shooting in my head. He missed. And the bullet hit my hand, went through my hand, hit the grenade, and it blew right here. I looked down. I could see my heart beating. I looked at my right hand. It was severed in half, and my thumb was hanging by tendons. My fingers were hanging by skin, and sprays and flags 
My blood was shooting out of a beating heart that told me I wasn't dead yet. Went blind in my eye, deafened my ear. My brain said, you're dying for people you don't even know. They don't love you, and you're dying for them. Dying for my country, and they were protesting in the streets, calling me baby killer, and I'm trying to save babies from being killed in that country. All that rushed through my mind in one second, and the next second, all those negatives were pushed completely out. Here's what went through my mind besides shrapnel. <laughs> now that's funny, I don't care who you are. <laughs> a scripture I learned when I was a little boy, Philippians chapter 1. Listen to what verse 12 says. I want you to understand, brethren, that means the letter is addressed not to the local bar down the street. It was addressed to the household of faith, to the brothers and sisters in the church in Philippi, not the Philippines, which I thought for years. I want you to understand, brothers, he said, the things which happened to me. You mean Paul, who wrote the letter, had things happen? Yep. Forrest Gump did, too. He didn't call it things, but we'll leave it at that. They made bumper stickers of it. Things happen. Well, wait, I'm a Christian now. I don't, I'll never get sick. Well, I mean, things don't happen to Christians. I remember I was on Trinity Broadcasting one night, and it was a preach-a-thon. Don't watch preach-a-thons. It's a waste of time. Oh, Lord, you get everything in the world contradicting each other. It's stupid. I'm next in line after this guy preaching up there, and he's real cocky. Bless God, he said, I'll never be sick. You can't be cocky and preaching until you're 50. When you're over 50, you can do anything. <laughs> I'll never be sick. And I'm sitting there wheezing because when I inhaled all that phosphorus, it burned all those follicles out. The doctor said just what was done to my bronchioles should have killed me, not to mention everything else that happened. And so all those little hair that push up moisture are all burned out. They don't come back. So I cough a lot because I don't want to get pneumonia. It keeps that moisture out of my lungs. I'm sitting there, he's saying he'll never be sick, and I'm wheezing. <laughs> then I mumbled, you already are sick. <laughs> but I didn't know my lapel mic was on. <laughs> Everybody heard it. It went out across the airwaves. It's time to praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Oh, my goodness, I stirred up all hell that day. They were fighting, man, you wouldn't believe they were after me. I'm, I'm not kidding, man. People calling up, whoever said that, get him off the air. And the other half were saying, whoever said that, put him on the air. <laughs> it was bad. Let me tell you something, folks. It's a lie out of hell that says you'll never have a bad day. It's a lie out of hell. Well, I give my heart to Jesus. I'll be rich and I'll be in hell, good health the rest of my life. Paul didn't even pray that he wished it, but he didn't pray it. He wished it for Gaius. I wish that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth and is in health. You, I, we're going to continue in this carnal flesh of a body till we die, and then the, the unclean will be made clean. The filthy flesh will be transformed into righteous bodies. Do you hear me say amen? amen. So here's the facts, folks. That day, my body said, you're dead. Now, I've never been dead to know if I'm dead or not. I don't know what dead is. Have you ever been dead? Tell me what dead is. I thought I was dead until I saw that blood shooting out of that artery and see my heart beating. I fell over backwards. I swam across the river, actually, first. I swam my skin all around me. 
I was beside myself. You got, I needed, you're going to like this one. Are you ready? I needed to pull myself together. <laughs> oh, I love it when a crowd gets it. Y'all are good, man. I was on my knees looking at the damage. I fell over. Everybody thought I died. So now they were excited. They had a KIA and a body to prove it. Well, I wasn't all that excited, I'll tell you that. But have you heard me talk about how bad it hurt? Nope. Because from the instant of the explosion, I never felt a thing. Zero pain. None whatsoever. It's not that I just don't remember it. It never happened. I instantly went into shock and remained in shock from the time of the explosion, jumping in the water, swimming across the river, crawling out, looking at my body, fall over backwards, them thinking I'm dead. They landed at what's called a dust-off helicopter. It's an air care flight in the civilian world. They rolled me on a stretcher. I'm still burning. The stretcher caught fire. I fell through on my head. You ever have one of those days? <laughs> Nothing went right. They rolled me up in wet blankets, got me on another stretcher in the helicopter. Away we go. And I've been in general aviation for about 45, 50 years now. I can estimate, looking back, it's probably about 1,500 feet up when the pain hit. Now, I, I've heard tongues talked in church. I speak several languages. And in my native tongue of Spanish and my English language, I have yet to find a word that can describe what it feels like to have 5,000 degree Fahrenheit white phosphorus still boiling your blood, literally, and the smell of my own flesh. I don't want to describe too much. Some of you throw up. Honest to God, I've had people pass out and throw up just trying to talk about it. It hurt. And I let out a scream. No amount of macho could restrain or constrain my spontaneous eruption of volume through what was left of my vocal cords. I screamed out, Matic. It scared him so bad he almost jumped out of the helicopter. The pilot lost control. We're dropping like a rock. And I thought, good grief, we're going to crash. I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> That's what I thought. It wasn't funny then, but it's funny now. They got me to Saigon and then to Japan. A lot of stuff in there I don't have time to talk about. Amazing stuff. Oh, I wish I had three hours, but maybe I get to, maybe I can come back someday if y'all if y'all don't run me off. And thank you. No, that was a cheap trick there to get an invitation back. But if I didn't like you, I wouldn't pull that on you. I tell you that right now. I don't go back where I don't like. And so they got me to Japan eventually on a big jet airliner hospital plane. They put me in the hospital in somewhere outside Tokyo, a field hospitals, fourth, I don't know what the numbers are. And I did something really stupid. <laughs> they did something really stupid. What do you think it was? I asked for a mirror, and they brought it. And they held it on my face, and with my good eye, I could look up and see what I saw, this was swollen to the width of my shoulder. This was charcoal. You could break it off. It was charcoal. My teeth stuck outside of my head. My eyeball was gray with no eyelids sitting in a black skull. I saw a broken promise. I'll be back without a scar. 
And I could not afford to let that happen. I could not allow myself the remote chance that I might live. I took it out of God's hands. I took it out of my doctor's hands. I jumped out of the hand of God that day. I couldn't let her see me. So I tried to kill myself. And I pulled the tube out. I had no gun or knife. How do you kill yourself? You pull out the things that are keeping you alive. I pulled the tube out. Long tube. I got hungry. <laughs> it was the wrong tube. That's disgusting. <laughs> so if you're going to kill yourself, don't, don't eat. Oh. Boy, the doctors, oh, I enraged my doctors. They found out what I did. They're trying to save my life. I'm trying to kill myself. They made me new orifices I didn't have before that. Just new places to put tubes. Tubes everywhere. To punish me, they took my last will and testament and put me on an airplane and sent me to America. And to me, it was punishment. And to me, I did want to die on that plane. I didn't want them to let me live. I wanted to have to process my dead body when we landed at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. They put me on a helicopter, took me over to Fort Sam Houston, the Brook Army Medical Center, the most amazing burn treatment in all of the world. I was there for 14 months and 13 surgeries before I got out. <clears throat> When they took me in, I'm going to close by telling you the two events in reverse order chronologically. I want to tell you about when they put me in the hospital. They put me in the ICU. The, I didn't know what that meant. I'd never been in a hospital before. And the ICU, that's when they give you that robe that doesn't come together in the back. It's the ICU. <laughs> I thought it meant the Navy draft. <laughs> It is windy back there. And they put me in this room with 12 others. We called it death row because we were 13 of us in there. We were known as the Baker's Dozen on death row because we were all put in there to die. They didn't want us dying on the main warding because guys that had a chance to live would be discouraged by seeing all of us die. And we called it death row. And I'm the only one that lived. Everybody died. I'd hear death rattles, and I'd hear, Mama, Mama, until it faded and there was no more breath. Things I can't get out of my head. I wish I could tell you. Everything's great. Everything's fine. I wish I could tell you I don't lay awake at night with images and sounds and memories. I wish I could. But God's never taken it all away. He lets me remember so I know how to minister to the guys that have the sounds and the visuals that they can't get out of their head. And when I say, I know how you feel, I have a scar to prove it. But I don't like the scar. I wish it would go away. I'm just not the man. I wish I was. 
And it's very embarrassing. But I'll take it so that I can make it real for the guys that I reach to in the Border Patrol and the U.S. military all over the world and to our first responders. I want them to know they're not alone. And if God can help me every day, it's not one and done. It's every day I have to lean on Jesus. And if I can make it, you can make it. So don't sit there and tell me I don't know what it's like. I do know what it's like to be broken again and again and again. But I'm stronger in the broken places than I am in the places that have never been broken. They put me in that room. They let visitors come in. A woman came to see her husband. He was in the bed next to mine. He was 100% third degree, but he didn't have TBI, traumatic brain injury. None of them were going to live, and he obviously wasn't. It looked like he's made out of hamburger meat, literally. She walks in, took off her wedding ring, threw it on the bed, and she said, you're embarrassing. I could walk down the street with you. She walked out. I, I couldn't believe my eye. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of that. Now, that right there is funny. <laughs> I, I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> My wife couldn't believe it either. That little teenage girl standing there, boy, she went into a rage. She wanted to scratch that woman's eyes out. She was the next visitor in, and she walked up to my bed. On her way to my bed, she, she said it out loud, but I couldn't hear it because she was too far away, but I read her lips. She said, that's not my husband. And the doctor said, yes, it is, Miss Brenda. She said, no, it's not. Got to my bed, and she said it again. But she looked in my eye, and someone said, I wish I knew who to give credit. The eyes are the windows of the soul. She looked in my good eye, and she saw something she recognized that the rest of my body could not confirm. She said, Doc, this is Dave. And she'd be down and kiss while I was left in my face. She looked me in that eye again. She said, I just want you to know, I love you. Welcome home, Davey. I said, I'm sorry. I can't look good for you anymore. She said, you never were good looking. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, let me go back down to close to that first event. Remember when they put me in the helicopter and flew me over? They took me straight to a room called debridement. That's, that's hell on earth. That's worse than being burned. Burn me, shoot me, stab me. Do anything you want, but don't ever debreed me again. Just, just kill me, get over with. Debreeding is when they take all the dead skin off you. Piece by piece. They're going to do it about 120 seconds. Within two minutes, you will go insane. Six attendants, all of them women, three on each side of the tank called the Hubble tank. We nicknamed it the pit. So I'm in the pit of hell, and they're pulling skin off me, and I'm screaming in desperate pain. I reached up. Her hair was a little bit longer than the other girls. I grabbed it, flipped it right in that tank with me, I put her face down in that water that was pure saline to start with. Now it's full of blood and skin. I tried to drown her, tried to kill her because 
I tripped out. I, I, I actually thought she was trying to kill me. She's trying to save my life. Five others had her out in a minute. She actually was never at risk. But when they got her out, I looked up. My skin is in her hair, and her white uniform is pink with diluted blood, and I'm embarrassed so desperately. I'm not the man I thought I was. I was speechless. And then they spoke and said, I think he's had enough. <clears throat> and I repeated it. I think he's had enough. No me pega, por favor, no mas, no mas. They put me on a gurney and sent me down to death row, remember? On the way, the medic said, in the morning at 8.30, we're going to do this again. I looked up at him and said, oh, no, you're not. You're never going to hurt me like that again. He said, yeah, we have, we have to. I said, no, you don't. You and the army, the whole army is not big enough. Put me back in that tank. I said, you're not going to hurt me like that ever again. He said, you'll die. I said, if I die, I'll be at my hand. You know, the problem with suicide is you're master of your own destiny. You are you're your own God, the self-made man. You know what the problem with the self-made man is? He worships his own creator, himself. See, when you're in charge, God's not. It's a, it's a contest to, between you and him. The Bible says the spirit of God and the carnal man are at enmity at war. I'm a self-made man. Well, good luck, because you made a mess of the man you created. See, in the beginning, God created man. In the end, man created God, and it's not good. So I was telling him, I'll kill myself before I let you put me back in that tank, because I knew the army, as big as they are, would not put a dead man back in that tank. He got me down to the death row and put me in that bed with the air mattress. I was awake all night with anxiety attacks. I would have been awake with pain, but the anxiety attacks were more than the pain I was experiencing because I knew what was coming. 8.30, I heard that gurney come. It had a wobbly wheel on it like a Walmart shopping cart. <laughs> the death angel pushing that bed toward me. And I thought, oh, God, it's going to hurt. They put the bed and the gurney side by side and got on each end to swing me over with guys on the foot and dropped me. And I hit right between the bed and it separated. I threw out my elbows. I'm holding on and I'm slipping. I'm about to fall all the way through. When my feet hit, it jarred my body so bad I just let out a scream. I, I mean, there was a lot of screaming went on. It sounded like hell itself in that place. I'm not kidding you, folks. You hear men screaming all the time, day and night, especially when they're in the tank. Screams could be heard three wards away. My feet hit. It jarred my body. I let out a scream. I'm holding on, about to fall through. And I'm thinking, this is going to leave a mark. I don't need another mark. And my life took a change. When I was not the man I thought I was, screaming like a little school girl on the schoolyard, I'm in pain beyond measure. I'm going to describe him as six foot six, six foot eight maybe, big, 350 pounds of solid muscle. When he moved, cannonballs popped up, chest, arms, shoulders, black, bald, and his name was Rosie. <laughs> Honestly, guys, tattooed on his arm right there, Rosie, R-O-S-I-E. He put an arm under the back of my head, and I felt like it was a forklift. I stiffened my neck. He's giving him leverage. 
He reached down with his other hand. He picked me up, and I was a featherweight in his arms. He turned, but no gurney for Rosie. He carried me all the way down that long corridor, bent over, and lowered me into the pit of hell, extracted those arms. He backpedaled, folded his arms, leaned against the wall, and just as I was going into the screaming fit of pain, as they were skinning me alive that day, filleting my body, I looked over. The morning sunrise cast a golden hue on his ebony skin, and tears flowing down his face reacted and reflected like streams of fire. His lips were moving. Rosie was praying for me. I took strength from him being there. The Bible says, though I make my bed in hell, thou art there with me. I was not alone. Rosie was praying for me. When they finished, they put me on a gurney, and he reached over to the gurney and picked me up. He would not let them send me back on a gurney. On the way back, as he carried me, I draped over his arms like a wet towel. I was so broken. And as he walked, these are the words he said over and over and over. You'll be fine, big man, you'll see. You'll be fine. You'll be fine, big man, you'll see. You'll be fine. He got me to death row and lowered me into my air mattress, extracted those forklift arms, did something I never let a man do. He bent down and kissed me on the forehead. <laughs> Said it again, you'll be fine, big man, you'll see. You'll be fine, and he walked away. And I'm checking my time to see if I'm going to be fine before y'all stone me for keeping you too late. <laughs> now I went to church and got stoned. <laughs> If I stopped right there, what a story. What a story that this man would carry me, pray for me, and he didn't even know who I was. If I stopped right there, it's a great story, but the, the last few minutes is icing on the cake. You got a minute? Let me tell you the rest of the story, Paul Harvey. Now I tell you how old I am. <laughs> 20 years later, now this is 35 years ago, but 20 years after my injury, I'm asked by the United States Air Force to speak at Redmond Field in Oregon for the Air National Guard for the great state of Oregon. 20,000 people came out that day. They shut down the runway, set up tents. We took over the place. It was a hoot. I had Give me a crowd that size, I'm in heaven. Standing ovations, people throwing the hat in the air, and then at the end, Everybody's just so, it was just so patriotic. One of those awesome moments. A woman walked up to me out of the crowd. Very beautiful. She was as classy as she was pretty. Her hair was shoulder length. I called it salt and pepper. She's about a dozen years older than me at the time. I remember everything about her. She looked at me and she said, you're Dave, right? And I'm thinking, she's identifying the speaker. She was at the back of the crowd, no big screen TV 35 years ago. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm the speaker. She said, I know, but 
David's your nickname. Your real name's David. I'm thinking, well, it's not Bartholomew. <laughs> she set me up. I'm thinking, yes, ma'am. I says, she said, that's your middle name. I said, whoa. Even Pastor Brian probably didn't know it. My middle name's David. She said, your first name's Milton. You're Milton David Reaver, R-O-E-V-E-R. I said, yes, ma'am. Who are you? She said, I'm the nurse you dragged into the tank 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I was speechless again. I didn't know what to say. And I tried to, I said, I'm sorry. She said, oh, no, 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 no apology. She said, I thought it was you. I just didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> oh, I said, shh. Then I remembered Rosie. She was there. She would remember for 20 years, I had looked for Rosie. 55 years later, I'm still looking for Rosie. I can't find him. I said, Madam, do you remember a guy named Rosie? If I tapped her on the head with a two-by-four, it's like she blinked, came out of a trance. She said, I haven't thought of him in years. I said, do you know what his real name was? She said, all I knew was Rosie. It was tattooed right there. I said, that's the guy. I'm looking for him. Where is he? I said, do you know where he is? She said, I don't know where he is. Where did he come from? She said, I don't know where he came from. I said, when did he come to Brook Army Medical Center, Burn Ward? She said, when you did. I trembled with the next question. When did he leave? She said, when you left. I've wondered so many times. All my friends tell me he was an angel. Angel of the Lord camps around about those that fear him and serve him, that love the Lord. I love him, I fear him, I serve him. And I do believe in angels. I always thought they were up in the air harping about something. <laughs> but I believe in angels. But what if he wasn't an angel on assignment? What if he was just a man on a mission? We didn't have to be there. No commander told him to go. And he caught me in the fall. When my bed was separating, I was falling through the cracks of life. He grabbed me and caught me. So you say, why are you here today, Dave? As an entertainer? No, I'm not an entertainer. I'm here maybe for something a little more obvious. I'm looking for Rosie, and I see a church full of Rosies, people who'll do what Rosie did, carry those that can't get there on their own, love them when they hate themselves enough to kill themselves, speak words of encouragement. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see when there's not a thing in the world to give them hope, you give them hope. Maybe I came today to ask you to be a Rosie to somebody. Or maybe you need a Rosie. I like to be Rosie to people that I can identify with. And so today I still work for my government. Sometimes I wonder why. And then I remember they're not the man they used to be. They need a Rosie. I have a little video I'd like to show you.
and it'll give you an idea of what I do, where I do it, why I do it. You'll see the most places I went to. They can't be identified. Some of them are still classified, but if you've been down range, you may recognize them. You'll see the ranches I built, one in Colorado, one in Texas for our warriors that are worse wounded to come to for upper and lower respiratory recovery and to heal their broken hearts. And you'll see the most difficult thing I've ever been asked to do for my country. And that's not survive Vietnam. It's to fly at 30,000 feet during the night across the Middle East with an airplane full of what we call caskets, military calls transfer cases. And I've sat there wondering with those flags draped over those caskets, was the next Billy Graham, was he killed and is his body in one of those caskets? How about that nurse killed in Balad, Iraq? Was she the next Mother Teresa? You and I in this world and this life will never know the real cost of freedom. But we have a clue to know it's more than we can ever repay. The hardest thing I've ever done is bring them home for internment. And this video will help you understand that. It's very short, very few words, but it speaks a million words and pictures. The Angel Flight Home, would you roll that video, please?
flight Bravo 03. Gear down, five miles. We have a hero on board tonight. Angel flight Bravo 02, you are number one for landing. Welcome home. This morning, there's another angel flight coming. My question is, do you have your ticket? It's already bought and paid for. Have you taken that ticket? Do you have your boarding pass? If you, uh, if you don't get on that plane, you're not going home to a hero's welcome. In our programs for our military at those ranches you saw, one of the most successful programs we have is for marriage renewal. And at the end of the session, after a week of being together, we do a renewal of vows. With very few exceptions, only two in our history did not renew their vows. They all renew their vows. Marriages are healed. Broken hearts are restored. And it can happen right here this morning. Here's what I want to do. The Bible tells us to return to our first love. We're going to renew our vows to Christ. We're going to pretend like we've come to Jesus for the first time today. It's ceremonial. But for those of you that are not walking with Christ, it's not a renewal of vows. You need to make some vows. I'm trying to make this as easy as you can. I know earlier there was an opportunity for you to make that decision to follow Christ. And I want to honor that because you did make that decision. Some of your hands apparently went up and you prayed that prayer. I want to give you a chance to, let's just confirm our confirmation. Would you pray out loud with me, everybody in the house? Let's renew our vows or make vows. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I give you my heart and soul. I believe you're in this house. To give you myself, I ask you to make me the man and woman I ought to be. Make me who I ought to be. So at this moment, Here's my confession. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you lived without sin. I believe you took upon yourself my sin. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again for me. I believe you're coming back for me. I also believe I was born in sin. I lived in sin. I have been a sinner. I confess my sins, and by faith, I declare, you who gave yourself for me, then you gave yourself to me, now I receive you as Lord and Savior, and from this day forward, I will serve you for the rest of my life. So help me, God, and I'm not going to sin anymore. But if I do, but I'm not planning on it, so I won't. But if I did sin, and I'm not making excuses now to sin later, I'm just saying I'm not going to sin anymore. But if I do, but I won't, I have an advocate with the Father, and I will keep on serving you till the day I die, and I stand before you in judgment 
with clean hands and a pure heart. In Jesus' name, I am a born-again believer. Amen. Give it up for Jesus. <laughs> Woohoo! Whoa! Thank you, Lord. Well, look, I'm going to surrender this mic, but I just want to tell you, I know there's going to be a love offering. Pastor, you're so generous. Come on up, sir. You're so generous to let the folks contribute. Here's what you're giving to. I'm working with the Border Patrol very, very closely, and I'm leaving on a trip for our troops in our Special Operations Command Pacific in Pearl Harbor in just a few days. I need your help if you're willing to support this effort. It's going to cost me about 20000 to do these trips and because it's very expensive. And then once I'm there, I'm covered in my hotel room for about half the time. So I'm covered part of it, but for the events coming up, we're about 20000 20, short. You can help me with that. Some of you could probably write a check and cover it. Here's the rest of the story. I have donors that give equal of $1,000 for $1,000, up to ten grand. And I can tell you some James Avery Jewelry, uh, Hobby Lobby, American Airlines, who helps me. You wouldn't believe some of the folks that stand by me. They give big help, but you have to respond first. They don't let it be. Collective giving has to be individual giving of 1000 or more, and they'll match it. So if you're blessed and, are, and you're gifted as a giver, the Bible says that it's a gift of giving. If you have that gift, you can afford it. I promise you, after 55 years of ministry, absolutely scandal-free, you, you can trust me. We'll invest your money in the souls of those who invest their very lives for the freedom of us. I'll be a good steward. When you give, give with confidence. And if you give that gift through your credit card at our table, I will let Pastor know exactly what's given so that nothing is done in this church he's not aware of that deals with money. That's my accountability to him and to you. I love you, friends. Thank you for letting me share my heart with you. I'm going to go back and sign books, not because I'm egotistic, uh, egotistical about it. I sign it as a contract. If I sign your book, that means when you see my name, you have to pray for me. That's our contract. I'm Dave Reaver, and I approve to this message. I love, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.